I'm Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. Hi, everyone. It's Mel Kettle here again, and you're listening to This Connected Life. My guest today is Rose Herseg, Chief Strategy Officer of WPP Australia, New Zealand. Thank you so much for joining me, Rose. Thanks for having me, Mel. I should have asked, did I pronounce your surname correctly? You did a fantastic job. Most people struggle, but you did very well. Whew, thank goodness. <laughs> so we're here today. I'm at home. You're at home. We were supposed to be recording this in person in Sydney in your office, but thanks to good old coronavirus... We are not. Thank you so much for continuing to make the effort with this. I really appreciate it. Uh, Look, it's a pleasure. And I think me and you and everybody else in this country and everywhere around the world is learning how to adapt in a new environment, right? So this is real life for at least a couple of months. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. You were just saying that this is your fourth week working from home and this is my 14th year of working from home. So I think I've got a good handle on how to keep work and life semi-separate but you know like a lot of us I've always believed in work-life integration and I think that's because I work for myself as well how are you finding it managing that the disparity between having a life and having work when it's all in the same place look I think we've got to let go of the idea that everything can be balanced it just can't I think there'll be days where your whole world is about work And then there are days that you can claw back and you can take out the hour here or there to spend some time with your kids or your partner or just walk outside and get some fresh air. So I think the idea of having a very clear delineation is just nonsense because that's just not real life. But I do think you need to understand when you're getting no time for personal life and it's all about the work. You know, I'm doing now... 15, 16 hour days. But even in in the midst of those days, you know, I live with my fiance and it's just 10 minutes to have a chat to him, have a hug, have a bit of a giggle. Then I get back into the work. But I think you've got to find little moments of joy or pleasure because sometimes that's enough to sustain you. And I think that's what you've got to do to survive what we're going to have now for at least what the next three, four, who knows how long, how many months. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think as people get more into the rhythm of juggling everything from the same place they will build in those rhythms and like one of the things for example that I do which is a not negotiable is I go for a walk for 30 minutes every day yeah that matters right you've got to have time where it's just about you and also recognizing that I know for me I have to be incredibly productive a big part of a job as a strategist is to come up with new ideas every single day every day I've got a client who needs a solution the only way that I'm going to stay sharp is to have very charming personal moments in my life. So I've got to actually build in a quick walk or a quick conversation or a cup of coffee with my fiance or a chat to my mum, anything that'll keep the engines burning. And I think that's where people get tripped up. You've got to build in times of humanity, human reality, human moments to allow the work to be good. I think that what we've got to do is get better at just building in five minutes here, five minutes there to get through it. And I think a lot of people look at work and play and think I'll do eight hours of work and then I'll do three hours of play or three hours of family time. I just think that will never fly in this environment, to be honest. I talk a lot about how important it is to have mental breaks during the day because sleep at night is essential, but taking little breaks throughout the day on a regular basis just helps you make it through the day with that 
maybe not quite the same level of creativity and productivity at the end of the day as at the beginning of the day, but with a good amount. And people who just sit at their desk and don't move for three, four, five hours, A, I don't understand how they can do that. B, I don't understand how they can get up without being in a whole lot of physical pain from having not moved from the same position. But C, how do they stay productive for that time and mentally fresh and alert? Because you can't be, your brain isn't designed to be on the whole time. That's right. I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think if anything, this COVID-19 crisis will teach a lot of people how to take short breaks and how mm. to actually mix it up. Because in the mixing up, by the way, comes the good idea. Oh, that moment is, is where you get the inspiration. Yeah, so it matters. One of the things I'm struggling with is being creative in my office. My office is not, as you can see, not creative inducing space. And it never has been. I've always had to go to a cafe or somewhere else to get ideas, to be able to write, to be able to do things that require deep thought. So I'm really grappling because I can't go to my favourite cafe now to do the work that I need to do, which means my next book's way behind time frame because I haven't been able to get out. So I'm really struggling and trying to find somewhere in my home that's not associated with work so I can do some deep work. But at the same time, I don't want all of my home to be associated with work. So where do you go to be creative? Yeah, look, I'm a fan of noise and music Mm. and sound and television. If I'm struggling, I will put on the cheesiest, stoppiest movie I can find, anything that'll give me a good cry or make me just forget about what I'm trying to solve. And because I'm quite literally not thinking about the problem that I need to solve, something great comes. So I think people need to use TV, audio, Netflix, Foxtel, you name it, put it on. And a lot of people would think that's a guilty pleasure. Oops, I'm going to watch the next episode of Ozark. That's really bad. And I say, no, 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 watch whatever it is that turns you on, an episode of the Kardashians, whatever it's going to be, because that's the escape that perhaps you might get that you ordinarily would have gotten in a cafe. Because if you think about why people go to a cafe, it's external stimulation. It's other people's voices. It's being in a space that's not their own. I think you've got to fake it. And that could be through TV anything that just makes you forget where you are. That's what I do quite a lot of, actually. I have had five people send me cafe apps that mimic the sound of being in the cafe. (laughs) You've got some very nice friends. Oh, it it makes me laugh every time. Um, So crazy TV shows, tell me your guiltiest pleasure or what, I I don't like that expression because I don't think pleasure should be guilty, but tell me your favourite embarrassing TV show. Yeah, look, I watch everything. I mean, a big part of my job is as a strategist and as a futurist. So I watch everything from Real Housewives to anything with the Kardashians. I will watch everything about the Ozarks. I love that show. Ozark, I think, is one of the great shows on Netflix. I've watched every episode of The West Wing because that is, to me, the dream American president. Jeb Bartlett is like the who's who. Uh, That's my favourite show ever. It's a great Ever. show, Aaron Sorkin, great writer. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I've watched it so many times and I was just thinking the other day, I think I'm due for a rewatch again. Well, well, I do that too. I rewatch a lot of things that I like. I mean, I watch Peaky Blinders, another great show. A lot of Aaron Sorkin, I like even the newsroom and, and Studio mm. 60 on the Sunset Strip. I like all the stuff that he's done. He paints a perfect world, but I kind of love that. I think we need a little bit of, you know, hyperbole right now, a bit of perfection. I'm a huge fan of great TV and we've never had a better time in great scripted drama ever. Absolutely agree. My husband said the other day, let's watch a movie together every night. And I looked at him and went, I don't want to watch a movie. I want to watch two or three episodes of a really good TV show together every night. And so last, and he's into movies more than TV. And so 
Last night I said to him, we need to watch The Stranger. The book was great. Harlan Coben wrote the book. And we watched the first two episodes last night based largely on Annabelle Crabb's recommendation on the Chat 10 Looks 3 podcast, plus a few others. And, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't have nightmares last night after the end of the second episode. But it was amazing. And you're right. We are in such a glorious time for TV. We are. And I said a lot of the people in our teams, listen, at night, you know, start a new show that you've been dreaming of starting that you haven't started. You know, Shit's Creek, there's a lot of stuff that's out there that is already in your sixth or seventh season people have missed. Go back to the beginning of the catalogue, watch it. Movies, I mean, on Friday night, my fiancé and I watched Field of Dreams. I love a good sports movie. I love a good baseball movie. I love Kevin Costa in that movie. It is a cheesy, wonderful affirmation of doing something that you just hope takes you someplace good. If you build it, he will come. Those words in a time of COVID-19, you could not write that movie better than for this era. So I think we need a lot of positive energy right now because it's easy to get caught up in the negativity of what's going on. But this too shall pass, right? So my last movie recommendation for you, given you love sporting movies and you love Aaron Sorkin, if you haven't seen Moneyball with Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, put that on your list. It is one of the best movies. It is. I have seen it. And to anyone who's listening to this, you've got to download it. You've got to watch it. It is a great... Yeah, and a great Michael Lewis book too, right? So if you're going to watch or read anything, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. My husband is the biggest fan of his books and I've read a few, but the book Moneyball, I found that so hard to get into because of the sporting technicalities of baseball, which I really don't care about. But the movie was fantastic. And he wrote The Blind Side as well, which again, another absolutely fantastic movie, really complex book in terms of the detail he goes into with football. Yeah, I agree. But again, look, what we're talking about here is great content. And Mm. I think the lesson certainly for me is the content that isn't your job content can sometimes unlock how to solve problems in your job. So use Mm. external pleasure, use external stimulation to get the job done and enjoy it and just love it and jump into the fire of watching movies for two hours, even during the day if you've got the time and work late at night if that's your poison, if that works for you. When I first started working from home, I used to watch an episode of something every lunchtime and that would be my complete switch off break. And yesterday morning, The Nanny has just dropped on Stan and I loved The Nanny and so and it's so funny and so fun. And so I promised myself I'm going to watch an episode of The Nanny every day and oh. there's 100, I think there's 122 episodes, so, you know, three or four months' worth. Well, and um, yesterday morning... The most oh, amazing wardrobe, right? Oh, my God, I know. Yeah. Yesterday I watched an episode while I had breakfast. 25 minutes, done, laughed for the day, great mindset for the day. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is really good, Mel, because I think a lot of people are feeling like TV isn't work, it's not allowed, and I think you're living in your home. Do whatever you can use or watch or be a part of to feel alive and to feel that you can do your work well. So whoever's, you know, again, watch away, everybody. So other than connecting through watching TV, what does connection mean to you? Well, look, connection to me is the ability for people to just tell the truth, to let down their guard and to talk openly about whatever it is that's going on in their workday or their life or whatever. I know for me, when I'm really connecting with the people that I'm working with, it's when we're just laughing about a problem that we have that none of us can solve or it's not going particularly well. But it's putting down the safat that that facade of buzzword bingo, I'm not a fan. I always take a red pen to all of the very serious corporate language that gets in the way of people just talking truth to one another. And I, I think the greatest connection happens when people aren't sure, don't know, are nervous, 
are struggling, uh, not having the best day in the world. And you can just talk about that stuff. But I think for me, a lot of people, I think, I, I feel anyway, feel that they are connecting. I'm just not sure they are. With all this technology in the world and all this social media that we have at our fingertips, how many of us feel truly connected every day? I would argue there's a good portion of the population that doesn't. Yeah, absolutely agree. I do a keynote called Let's How to Disconnect to Reconnect. And it's all about how do you put your phone down and the screen down so that you can have real conversations with real people. And I'm not saying don't use your screen or your phone, but be deliberate and make it the choice to use it as opposed to that mindless scrolling through Instagram on the couch thinking I'll do it for two minutes and then it's an hour. Yeah, I think that's right. And mm. I think, you know, I think connection comes from really listening to the person that you are speaking with, really hearing them and figuring out what's really going on with them and asking a brilliant question. I mean, it's funny, if you just ask somebody, how are you really going in all of this? You often get a very different response to how are you? Oh, fine, fine, fine is the requisite response. And if you really ask somebody what's really going on with them, all of a sudden stuff comes out of their mouth they probably wouldn't have shared. And I think for me, I only ever feel connected when I know that we are both in the moment having a truthful conversation where there's real vulnerability. That's for me, the great connection. Yeah, I really like that. I think one of the problems with asking people, how are you, is it's such a rote question that gets asked without thought. And I think when you give an answer that's not, or when you hear an answer that's not, oh, yeah, I'm fine, thanks, people just go, oh, my God, I actually didn't really want to know or I didn't care or I haven't got the time to listen. And so don't ask that question unless you're genuinely interested and prepared to listen to this response that might not be what you expect. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. We're all conditioned to be fine and being fine is, um, it's probably the most damaging word in the English language, fine. I've always felt it to be a really passive aggressive word. Often when I hear that, I think, oh, something's going on there and it's not a great word. But I, I do believe that to be connected, you need to know how to ask a question that can get somebody to feel comfortable giving you an honest response. And that, that's a real, there's a real art in asking mm. good questions, I think. I absolutely agree. I often say fine is a four-letter word because it is, <laughs> but it has such different connotations. And I was listening to Brene Brown's podcast this morning, her interview with Glennon Doyle. And if you haven't started listening to her podcast yet, it is absolutely fantastic. Truth bombs everywhere. And one of the things that Glennon talks about in her new book, which I'm about to go and buy the moment that we finish recording this, is how she's been sober for 17 years and she hasn't been fine since she last had a drink. And I was listening thinking, that's really sad. And then I thought, hang on. And she said, I haven't been fine because I've been alive. And when I was fine, I was just sort of muddling along and I was okay and I wasn't great at anything and I was bad at heaps of things, but I wasn't living my life and now I am. And it really reframed that word for me in a way that I'd never thought before. That's a lovely thought, you know, and I think if anything, what's interesting to me, and I'm yet to read a lot of editorials about this, but I imagine that they're coming, but I think we've got a lot of people who are finally going to start really thinking about whether they like their lives because now they're in this hyper-reality, this really weird situation, and they're probably questioning the job that they do, the relationship that they're in, how they spend their time, whether or not this is worth it in terms of the fact that we get a finite amount of time on this earth, and what do you want to do with them? And I think when you're surrounded by death toll and a million people infected and 
thousands and thousands dying in countries all around the world. It forces this level of clarity where you go, am I really fine? Do I like who I am? Do I like my life? Am I in a good place or am I going to change all of this? I imagine when this is over, there's going to be monumental change in this country. People's relationships, the jobs that they do, a real wake-up call. If, if the only upside to a crisis is it makes you awake to your own life. And so that fine word, I'm hoping will get booted out and people are going to start asking some tough questions of themselves. Absolutely. And I think not only are people going to be questioning their jobs, but they'll be questioning the relationships they have, the friendships they have, who's reached out to them to see how they are, yeah. how are they with their partner, with their kids, with whoever they live with. And one of the things that I've really found interesting is I've had a couple of people who've reached out to me to say, hey, how are you? And they're not people I would ever have expected to have heard from because we don't know each other that well. And the fact that they've taken the time has just made me go, wow, that's clearly our relationship's a lot deeper than I'd given a credit to for. So thank you. Yeah, that's really lovely. And I think it's very easy to look at all the downsides and there are many about what we're living through, but... The funny thing about loss and death and fear is that it awakens you to the possibility of who you want to be. And I do. I think that, same, Mel, I think a lot of people are going to be questioning what they're doing on this planet and whether it's worthwhile and how they want to spend whatever time they have left and how to make it a great life. And that, to me, is a great upside to what all of this mess is all about. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, to even seeing friends of mine who I think are probably on autopilot in their own lives, wake up to the fact that they're alive and they're healthy. They have a great life opportunity. What are they going to do with the remaining time they have? That to me is going to be a really exciting conversation for whoever in our society has the guts to get people to have that conversation with themselves. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm excited to see what the future brings for all of us. Yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. So just to shift gears a little bit, I first heard of you when I was doing some research on ageing and how businesses treat people who are older for one of my clients. And one of the things that I came across is the third Secrets and Lies report that WPP put out into ageing and busting some myths about ageing. The thing that horrified me the most about this report is that it said Australians over 50. And I just went, oh, my God, I've just turned 50. (laughs) I do not consider myself to be old. But it's very interesting that lots of businesses and other people consider 50 to be old. So how do we view people over the age of 50? You're right, Mel. I mean, a big chunk of Australia is over 50, you know, a quarter of the population moving up to, you know, the high 30% in the next two decades. It's funny, 50 is one of those magical numbers that kind of makes a lot of us think, wow, that's old. And it just isn't. I mean, you and everybody else who's in the age group have never considered themselves to be old. And 60 is the new 40, 50 is the new 30. And most people just figured out their lives and who they want to be when they hit 50. And so the best years are ahead of them. And yet marketing and the imagery that's created by advertising kind of tells them that youth is the thing that we should chase. And it's disappointing because the most interesting people are the people that have lived a life and have some life experience. And yet the community of advertising tells them the exact opposite. For every person you meet in in Australia who is in that age bracket, they are just hitting their stride. They are finding out who they are. They are often going back to university, getting remarried, doing the things that I think COVID-19 is going to do, figuring out who they want to be and getting rid of all the extraneous stuff and people, unfortunately, in their lives that aren't doing them any good. So it's a real awakening generation. Not that you would think that when you look at the way popular culture represents the age group. 
So what can what can we do? What can businesses do to become more interesting and to become more interested in people in that age bracket? Well, I think very, very obviously just reflect the reality of that life. And I make a joke about imagery that's presented on anyone that's um, over 50, that they're somehow walking down the beach ready for retirement with a bloody cardigan around their shoulders. None of that imagery is real. These people are back on Tinder. They are dating. They are back at university. They are remodelling a home. They're going through a divorce and getting introduced to somebody new. So I think we can just reflect the reality of their lives rather than these really kind of antiquated cliches of the fact that they're gearing, slowing down. They're not slowing down. They're actually gearing up. If you just reflected the real life scenarios that they find themselves in, you'd have a lot of success with this generation as a marketer too. I read a horrifying stat a year or two ago and it said one of the age group that has the fastest growing amount of STD is women in their mid-50s because they're divorced and they're in new relationships and they're having unprotected sex because they think I can't get pregnant, but they forget about all the STDs that are around. Yes, too true. One of the sad um, byproducts of being in the world and dating and being available again is, is that actual statistic. But that, again, is just evidence of the fact that that image of people that we have is that those on Tinder are in their 20s, whereas the fastest growing group on Tinder and all dating apps is people 50 plus. That's exciting, right? They want to find somebody, whether it's to find somebody for a casual situation, whether it's to actually make a permanent connection and a commitment, whatever their reason for being on online dating is, they want to be alive. So the most alive generation of people over 50, again, you wouldn't think it from the way pop culture reflects that. The other thing I found fascinating in your report was some of the data that you found around how much money people in their 50s have to spend on stuff. And that blew my mind, particularly when you look at ad campaigns and they're focused on millennials. Most millennials I know are either getting married, just got married, having children, want to have children, trying to buy a house, saving for a deposit, struggling to pay a mortgage. And contrary to the avocado and toast myth, they actually don't have a lot of spare money to buy stuff. No, they don't. Not a lot of disposable income in the millennial generation, whereas 50% of all the wealth in this country is held by people 50 plus. They've got 46% of all the disposable income. And look, they rode the property boom. And the statistic that I use is that if you look at one of the nicest houses in one of the best streets in Sydney that was sold in 1980, that house was sold in 1980 for $110,000. The exact same house was sold in 2019 for $8.8 million. that's the capital gain that's what's happened in the generation of the people that we're talking about who rode the single greatest property boom this country's ever seen and therefore usually are sitting on a piece of real estate or several pieces of real estate that have really appreciated dramatically and it's given them a bit of money and a lot of disposable income and they're buying the good stuff you know the good wine the good clothes the good holidays they're living it up they're, and they're under no guilt illusion that they're going to leave it to the next generation. They're like, they think they've done enough for their kids. They've given them an education, given them an opportunity and it's on them now. So again, this is a generation not only that is looking to have the best part of their lives ahead of them, they've got the money to burn. So, no. I've got a friend who runs a high-end travel company and she said their average client spends $200,000 per trip with them. Well, there you go. And I'm promising they're not millennials. Oh my God. No, they're not. They're all 50 plus, 60 plus. Yeah. She told me a story about how one guy didn't tick a box saying that he needed, because they do a lot of their, their holidays are safaris with 
into areas with not a lot of creature comforts, including electricity, and they're generator-reliant. And she said one guy turns up with his CPAP machine and hadn't told them. And how do you power a CPAP machine when you don't have electricity? You don't. So they had to get an emergency generator. (laughs) So now that's a question on all of their forms is, do you have all these things, including CPAP machine? (laughs) That's great. (laughs) They were horrified. (laughs) So what is it that you think that drives our unconscious bias to ageing? Look, everyone's scared of getting older, right? It scares people that, um, you know, there's mortality. Once you actually make peace with that, death awaits us all. That's Mm. the headline. I want to say to everybody every day, you're an organism that is one day closer to the inevitable death that we all face. What are you going to do with the time? The good part of that is when you flip that equation and you say to yourself, listen, I've got X, Y, Z days on this planet. What am I going to do with them? It really changes that conversation in your head. We fear what we don't know. We fear mortality take it off the table, I say to people, you're going to die. You know, there's no shock. Let's give you the shocking news first. The two things you can't avoid are death and taxes. Make peace with it, figure out what you're going to do with your life and make it count. But again, that is not a conversation most people even have with themselves, believe it or not. I often want to say to people that I know, you're acting like you're going to live forever. Friends of mine who only use the good china once a year, put on the good frock once a year. I think, what are you waiting for? Mm. Wear the high heel shoes, wear the dress, put out the good china, drink the good bottle of wine that you got eight months ago because you know what? You should. It's an extraordinary thing to me. And I've, I've been certainly raised in a culture where we were taught to appreciate everything and be in the moment. And so, you know, I do live in a world where if we are gifted something lovely, we just drink it the day we get it because that's how you should live. But I think for a lot of us, we are waiting for what? We're saving it up for the day when. And I think mm-hmm. that whole thing about infinity versus finity living forever versus not, that's a conversation most people will never have with themselves and they should be having it every day, particularly now through COVID-19. How do you think we can accept our mortality more and how do you think if I've got my former mother-in-law sat down with her one night at dinner we were visiting and I said we need to talk about the future we need to talk about what what are your wishes in case you get sick or you die and by the way where do you keep your will so that when that day comes short your your kids know where to find it and this happened we had this conversation shortly after my parents died and so or no probably shortly after I'd had this conversation with my parents and I thought we need to have this you know, with my in-laws as well. And she got up and left the table and refused to talk to me for the rest of the visit. And because her belief was that if she talked about death and if she talked about her will, then that would cause it to happen faster. Yeah, that's the thing, right? It's the last great taboo talking Mm. about what we know to be true. And I think with little children, I don't think it's a bad thing once they recognise that they too shall die. I mean, nobody wants to scare a little kid, but there will come a moment in their pre-teens or early teens when they figure out that everything that lives dies and getting everybody to have that conversation, I think makes life really exciting. It also makes it um, less scary because you can say to yourself, in the scheme of things, does this really matter? And nine times out of 10, the answer is no. I know personally I was terrified of death and dying and then my mother died when I was 40 and that removed all the fear. I suddenly realised that it didn't need to be this awful, scary thing. So now my fear, I still don't want to, but the fear around it isn't there anymore. And I wonder if people are scared because they've never experienced death. And so it's this mystery that is portrayed, particularly in Western media, as being this really scary thing. 
I guess the mythology and certainly the rituals around death are not pleasant. There's something quite sterile about the way we die in Western culture. There's nothing kind of natural about it. It's done oftentimes in a hospital or a hospice. It's often not done at home. The body is removed. It's either embalmed or something happens to it in that process. There's something kind of, that stuff is the scary stuff. It's this really sterile, not particularly human or emotional and it's it's I think the thing that makes people go it's kind of terrifying if we look at the way generations used to die many generations ago if I look at say my parents parents dying in little villages in Croatia in their own beds the whole family was around surrounding their bodies with flowers making it a very natural experience it took a lot of the fear out of it and I think when you ritualize it in the way that we have and remove a lot of the humanity it becomes this terrifying thing for sure interesting isn't it i'll talk to friends from other cultures who grew up in not in australia and they have very very different views around death because they also believe very strongly and firmly in the afterlife and so their view is well i won't be on this earth but i'll be in an, on another like i'll come back and i won't remember obviously coming back but i will be back and i'll be back as something different and something maybe better and that's exciting yeah, I think it is too. And I think if you can wrap your head around the idea that you won't be here one day, it makes life far more exciting. And I also think when you think about the fact that, okay, you've only got a certain number of days on earth, for me, I want to live those days. And even though the way that I'm living them at the moment is very different to how I expected to be living them this year, because I'm at home and I'm not on a plane every week and I'm not going to exciting places that I plan trips to, but you can still live your life in isolation and you can still have an amazing experience if you create the mindset that it will be a positive, fantastic opportunity to do different things or new things or to connect with people in new ways and to strengthen relationships in different ways. I think that's right, Mel. I think, you know, there is something very beautiful about putting your head on a pillow at night and feeling that that day you've really lived. Mm. You really suck the marrow out of life that day that you did the things that you wanted to do, that you said the things that you wanted to say to the people that you love, that you took a risk in your job, that you shared an idea that was a little bit on the edge. All that stuff that makes you feel truly alive is the way most people should live. And the question I would throw out to every Australian right now, everybody in the world is when you put your head on your pillow at night, do you feel like it was a day well lived? And I'm not sure that a lot of people can say absolutely because we do live in a society where you can go through the motions often and you can literally be on the periphery of your own life. I like that. I think often we go through the motion, but we don't go through the emotion. And I think that the more we can bring a diverse range of emotions into our day, then the more satisfying that will be. And that comes back to Glennon Doyle and Brene Brown talking about being fine. Because if you're just fine all the time, that's a very steady emotion, which and steady can be boring. I agree. I agree. And I think, you know, again, in the culture that I was raised in, we were allowed to be really, really happy and really, really sad really, really angry and really, really frustrated. And I think my mum and dad did a terrific job of us as kids in understanding all the emotions, even things like anger. As a little kid, I had a, a pretty terrible temper. And my dad said to me, it's okay to be angry, Rose. You have to learn how to be angry and tell people that you're angry with them in a way that doesn't hurt them. You can't jump on somebody and push them down, but you certainly need to be in touch with all of your emotions. And I think in our society, we have lost the ability to feel all of the emotions. 
People don't even know how to feel happy or sad or super angry. Anger is an incredibly effective and powerful emotion in dealing with what's really going on in your life. Not that you would know it because it's not even allowed in our society. Yeah, I loved the movie Inside Out where the five emotions are in the little girl's head and the message that says you can't have joy without sadness. And I thought at the time I just remember thinking, wow, I'd never thought about it that way, but the joy that I have now is so much greater because I have experienced extreme sadness. And so I'm so much more grateful for all of the joy in my life because of that. And I think you've hit on the absolutely, probably the most important theme of this conversation that we're Mm -hmm. having in that to be modular and to have a sense of mediocrity in all your feelings isn't a joyful way to live. And so to have the highest of the highs, you need to have the lowest of the lows. You need to feel the kind of sadness where your heart is breaking, whether it's a breakup with a partner, whether it's the loss of a parent or a relationship, and really feel it, really roll around in the sadness and the tears. And I'm, I'm a fan of lots of crying. I cry at the drop of a hat. I cry at every movie. And my fiancé says to me, I just love that you just cry. It's all out there. Or I'm so excited that I cannot contain my excitement and my she happiness. And I think you've got to feel it all. What's the point? I absolutely agree with you. And I think right now, something that a lot of people aren't possibly doing is acknowledging that it is a time of sadness because the lives as we knew them are not ever going to go back to that way. So we need to acknowledge that what we're going through now, there's a grieving process attached to this coronavirus experience and embrace that. And then move through those stages of grief until you get to acceptance and until you become capable of looking forward to the future with positivity and happiness and excitement. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, even with our people, we've got 5,000 people that work across all of our businesses. And, you know, every now and then one of them will have a very wobbly moment. And I'm like, feel it, feel the wobble. Because Mm -hmm. what comes after a wobble or sort of really a day where you're just feeling a bit broken and fragile is usually a really good day. Yeah. So I'm saying to a lot of my people, you're going to feel this up and down, this modulation, great one day, terrible the next. You know what? That's okay. Feel terrible. Roll around in it because that will mean tomorrow oftentimes will be a lot better. Absolutely. Yeah, I do think we've lost the ability to feel it all. Quite often, like one of the things I say to nearly all of my clients, the expression I use the most is you need to give your people permission to And what comes after the two varies. But I think people forget that as leaders, a big part of leadership is giving people permission to act in a certain way, to feel in a certain way, to think in a certain way, to do in a certain way, to believe in a certain way. And because people are so fearful about not doing the right thing that they forget that they can experiment or have some negativity or have a differing of opinion. Yeah. That's what we need. We do. We do need that. And again, another theme where this is all sort of taking us is the ability to disagree really vociferously, but respectfully. You know, disagreement is good. Not agreeing to everything, not having a Pollyanna outcome is not a bad thing. Being able to have a discussion that leads to a disagreement, that leads to a resolution. These are all good things. I think a lot of the next generations, particularly little kids, aren't learning because we're living Mm. in a culture where you can't say anything or upset anybody or do anything that's even slightly ruffling of a feather for fear of some bullying allegation or all the other things that we are facing as a society so nothing gets said. No one says anything. That's terrible. I was doing some work with a CEO a few years ago and he was incredibly influential in his organisation and in his industry and he said to me, 
one of the things I really love about working with you, Mel, is that you say no to me all the time. And the only other person who says no to me is one of my kids. And I said, okay, <laughs> didn't know that I couldn't. And I and he said, but what I like about how you say no is that you say no in such a way that makes me feel like you've said yes and let's do it this way. So rather than just a flat out, you don't say no for the sake of it, you say it with a meaning. Well, again, you know, one of the great lessons in life is learning mm. how to say no with compassion and no followed by a maybe this is another way of resolving yeah. it. Not the way yeah. that we think, but we can find another solution to a problem. Exactly. And he said, you actually never say the word no. You just tell me no in very creative ways without actually having the word no pass your lips. That's fantastic. Oh, never thought about it that way, but thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so I just have a few final questions to wrap up. And I'm disappointed that we've coming to the end of our time because I could continue talking to you for a really long time because I find the work you do absolutely fascinating, particularly all the work around ageing and what we need to do to become more accepting of ourselves as we age, but also as organisations, how do we work with more impact? Someone said to me recently, I can't believe that you've told the whole world that you've just turned 50 because A, you don't look at it and B, do you not feel that that's going to lose you work because of the stigma of ageing? And I said, I get work because I'm 50. I write about menopause on my blog. I've gotten four clients because because purely because I write about menopause and my experience, and that's not my area of expertise, but they relate to me because of that. And so I think people hire like-minded people and people in their 50s will hire people in their 50s. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So just before we wrap up, we've talked a lot about TV and movies that you love, and I'm just curious, is there a book or a podcast from a business perspective that, or a personal perspective that's really had an impact on you? You know, I've gone back to reading a lot of books that I've read. I like to reread and, you know, the Literary Guernsey Potato Society book, I just love. I've just read that all over again. I'm reading Grisham. I'm reading John Grisham again because I think he's a really great writer of legal drama. I'm just reading The Testament at the moment. I always go back to reading Stephen King's On Writing as a writer and I do a lot of writing. Such a great book. The Catcher in the Rye, I read it every autumn for some reason, so I've gone back to reading that as well. I'm a fan of rereading things in moments in time. Um, for a bit of pulp fiction, I'm reading You, which is the Carolyn Kepnes book, which is turned into the Netflix series at the moment. A little bit of sort of horror drama there. But look, I will have several books on my bedstand and I'll just read what I'm feeling in the mood for, and I think that's a really good thing to do. I can't go to sleep, honestly, Mel, without reading. I have to read every single night. Even if we get home at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning from an event or whatever, I've actually got to read. For me, the idea of reading something beautiful that just speaks to me is everything. But I'm a fan of rereading and I mean, I'll go back to something several times and reread it. And when I'm in the mood, I think it's a really good technique as well because it teaches me how to be a better writer. That's the other thing. Absolutely great. And I'm a big reader as well. I read every night in bed for half an hour or I try. Sometimes I don't quite make it that far. And sometimes I read for hours in bed because it's just part of my nighttime go to sleep routine. And the nights I don't do that, I find it much more difficult to get to sleep and stay asleep. Yeah, I agree. I need it and I love it. And I, and you know, and I think for a lot of people who don't read, I've never understood why they don't read. I've got a lot of people who are much younger who work across all of our businesses and they're just not readers. And I'm hoping that the upside of, again, COVID-19 is a generation of readers, particularly kids in their 20s who don't read, who now will hopefully start to read. Do you um, read hard copy books or on a device? 
I'm old school. I mean, I've got everything on a device. Obviously, I read everything from the New York Times to everything else online and I subscribe, but I still like a hard copy book. Same. I love the feel of a book. I love the smell of a book. Love it. Same. I read a lot of novels on my iPad, but I read nonfiction in a hard copy because then I can mark it up. And I'm one of those awful people who writes in books. So particularly if I've read a passage that I just want to remember the highlight well, come out. Nothing awful about that. I love it. <laughs> great. And I write in all my cookbooks too. I've got about 300 cookbooks. And whenever I make a recipe for the first time, I'll write my comments, what I've done differently, what I've changed, what I've added, whether it's worth making again. Oh, I love that. Total fail. <laughs> so if people would like to get in touch or know more about the work that you do, where can they find you? Well, look, they just find me on our website, wppaunz.com. They can easily find me. They'll find my email address as well. They can also download those three Secrets and Lies mm. reports, one of them the Ages and Booming report that you were referring to, Mel. So they can easily find me through the WPP URL and get to me with any question that they might have. I'll pop all those links in the show notes. Fabulous. Thank you so much. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your time today. It's been so lovely to meet you virtually and have a conversation. And once we can travel again, then I'll come to Sydney and we'll have a real catch up. We would love to have you at our offices. Honestly, Mel, I've loved every minute of the conversation and good luck to you. And I'll look forward to meeting you in person. Thanks so much, Rose. Have a great day for the rest of the day. You Bye. too. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at melkettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye.